this is Chief Judge Janet DeFiori. Over the past few months, the Gender Fairness Committee of the 3rd Judicial District, chaired by former Albany City Court Judge Rachel Kretzer, has produced a documentary about the pioneering women judges of the seven-county 3rd Judicial District. Nine groundbreaking judges were interviewed. May D'Agostino, Judge of the United States District Court for the Northern District of New York, Catherine Doyle, former surrogate of Albany County, Victoria Graffio, former judge of the New York Court of Appeals, Helena Heath, judge of the Albany City Court, Rachel Kretzer, former judge of the Albany City Criminal Court, Karen Peters, the presiding justice of the Appellate Division 3rd Department, Beverly Tobin, former judge of the Albany County Family Court, Mary Work, former surrogate of Ulster County, and Deborah Young, judge of the Rensselaer County Court. Throughout the month of March, Women's History Month, we will share these interviews through our Amici podcast. I think you will find the interviews of these trailblazing women to be both enlightening and inspiring. The judge said, called the case, and this attorney noted his appearance, and I said, Karen Peters for the defendant. And the judge looked at me and he said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I said, it's Ms., Your Honor. And he, looked, he was about... He was old. I'm old now, but he was he was old then. And uh, he said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I said, it's Ms., Your Honor. And he looked at me, and you could, he did one of those, you know, when your body moves, when you can see you're getting angry. And the courtroom, all the guys in the back, which just got quiet, they're like, oh, my God, something's happening up there. Look at the judge. He's starting to move. And he said, I said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I looked him straight in the eye, and I thought, you know what? I'm tired of this. I gotta, I gotta make my name known. I am tired of being berated like this. And I just looked at him and I said, Your Honor, it's Miss. And if you can't pronounce that term, when you take a recess, I'm happy to come to your chambers and tutor you. Welcome to Amici, news and insight from the New York Judiciary and Neophyte Court System. I'm John Carr. In the fall of 2016 and winter of 2017, the Gender Fairness Committee of the Third Judicial District, chaired by the Honorable Rachel Crutcher, Albany City Court Judge, began an oral history project interviewing the pioneering women judges of the Seven County District, those women who broke the gender barrier in various courts throughout the region. Over the next several weeks, in honor of Women's History Month, Amici will be posting portions of those interviews. The words you hear at the outset of the program were those of the Honorable Karen Peters, presiding justice of the Appellate Division, Third Department. Justice Peters is truly a pioneer, the first woman in the district to be elected to family court, the first woman in the district to be elected to Supreme Court, the first woman from the district to be appointed to the appellate division, and of course the first and only woman to serve as presiding justice of that prestigious court. We interviewed Justice Peters on two occasions in November 2016. What follows are both portions of the interview. I think you will find them insightful. So, um... Take us back to the beginning. Um, were there any female role models you had that inspired you to pursue a career in law or to, to, to go to law school? Not exactly. You know, um, everybody's path to law is different, and everybody's story is different. But there's an old adage that some take the elevator to success and some take the stairs, and I was a stair climber. Um, I was born in a family with two parents who never finished high school. 
So I didn't have any role models who were lawyers, certainly not female lawyers or female anything. Uh, my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and my dad passed away when I was a young teenager. So uh, I decided to go to college, and that was a, quite an achievement for my family to be able to finish um, four years of college. I was the first person to ever do that. But when I was in undergraduate school, I went to college in Washington, D.C. during the Vietnam War era protests. So, um, and I was a bit of a leftist at the time. So I found myself in a situation where a lot of my friends were protesting the war and getting arrested, and um, I was impressed with the people that represented them. I was overwhelmingly amazed with the justice system, which I had never seen, never been part of, never known a lawyer. At the same time, I was working for a law professor and a criminologist in, um, in undergraduate school, and the law professor, who was a female law professor, although I had nothing to do with the law school other than report to her with research, wanted me to go to law school, and the criminologist wanted me to get a PhD in sociology and uh, suicidology at Johns Hopkins. And uh, they worked together on this research project in the family courts in Montgomery County, Maryland. So for the first time in my life, I entered a courthouse. For the first time in my life, I found out what law school was and what lawyers were. So between my friends getting arrested and my uh, bosses trying to move me toward graduate school, I took the LSATs, uh, did okay, and uh, ended up at NYU. And so coming, well, first of all, at, at NYU, how many, how many women were in your class, do you recall? You know, I went to NYU uh, at a time when they had just dropped, no pun intended, the uh, women's clothing rules. Women used to have to wear suits and hose to school. So they dropped the clothing rules uh, just shortly before I started in law school. I don't know how many women were in my law school, but I can tell you that I always went to class with a sea of men. So very few. In fact, uh, it was an interesting time because they, it was an era where the law school provided uh, some scholarships to some women and some people of color, so we kind of aligned ourselves uh, with each other because we were the outsiders in the school who they wanted to have become insiders. Were there any gender issues that you encountered in law school? In law school? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, the, a lot of the professors were very unhappy about the fact that women were in in law school, and they were concerned that they were going to finish, take a space that some man should have had and get a degree and then get married and have kids and not use their education. Uh, so there was some discrimination, yeah, but I was, I was really blessed, you know. I, I, uh, I had some law professors who were incredibly helpful to me, and uh, I went to, actually ended up working for my evidence professor. So I think it was a positive experience for me, but not for everybody. Mm. So you, you come out in, I think it was 1972. What was the climate for female attorneys at that time? I graduated from law school in 1972 in Manhattan, um, but I never applied for a job. Actually, I never applied for a job in my life until I became counsel to the State Division of Alcoholism under Governor Carrie Cuomo. Everybody else was applying for jobs. I decided not to apply for jobs on Wall Street. Uh, on Wall Street at that time, if you were female, they'd ask questions like, what kind of birth control will you use? It was just offensive. The whole system was very um, discriminatory back then. So I decided I didn't want to be part of it. And I was already working. Um, I put myself through law school, got a small scholarship, and had to work. So even though NYU didn't allow law students to work their first year, I 
pretended I wasn't. And I got jobs doing contract research for uh, criminal lawyers in New York City. So I was always working in law school and never applied for a job. People just heard through the grapevine, oh, you know, you need a memo on this particular criminal issue. Call Karen Peters. She can do it for you. So that that's what I did. Um, and then when I finished law school, I was working at the time for a gentleman who had a... Uh, he was with the Guggenheim Foundation. He had a grant, and he was doing some major project involving the alcohol beverage control system in New York State and needed somebody to teach him the alcohol beverage control law. So he hired me, and I read the statute and taught him the law. So I could move that job wherever I wanted. So I almost telecommuted. I moved upstate uh, to New Paltz, New York, with um, no connections and no family and no future, and telecommuted back, that is, I went back to the city to meet with him and give him the information he needed, passed the bar and hung out a shingle. So uh, you, you had a private practice in, in New York? I did private practice in New Paltz, New York, in criminal justice, criminal defense, and matrimonial. And I also became a professor, assistant professor at SUNY New Paltz. So I uh, created curricula in civil rights and civil liberties, sex discrimination in the law, and criminal law, and taught part-time. How did you get clients? Well, uh, I got assigned to represent. I got assigned to represent people. Uh, clients would come to me through the grapevine. You know, somebody would say, "Hey, you know, you have a, a burglary. This is the person you want." So, to some extent, it would be through the grapevine. To some extent, town judges would assign me to represent litigants. Uh, when I started, of course, the town judges, because there wasn't a public defender system back then. When I started, the town judges wouldn't give me the cases involving dangerous people because they thought that I shouldn't get dangerous cases, that I was too young and too inexperienced, and I was a girl, and there were no girl criminal defense attorneys uh, at that time. So I proved myself and ended up, by the time I finished practicing criminal defense law, doing murder cases. And then um, when did the, the, the DA's office, right? I did. I, I was in, in the district attorney's office in Dutchess County for a very short time. The DA at the time, Jack King, who was a wonderful, wonderful, incredibly talented, smart man, asked me to come work for him, and I did for a short time. Okay. And how were you treated by the, the judges? Let, let me back up. Were you the only female ADA? No, I was the only female criminal defense attorney in Ulster County. When I went to work for Jack King, I was not the only female ADA. A very, very smart woman named Bridget Rahilly, I think, was doing the appeals uh, for the DA's office in Dutchess County. But the challenges I faced were as a trial ADA, and what, what Jack King, the DA, had me do was uh, not only handle the justice courts, but I handled arraignments after indictment in the two parts of the county court in Dutchess County. And at that time, it was a fascinating time in history because Judge Rosenblatt, who later became a Court of Appeals judge, was one of the county court judges. And another man, whose name I won't say on air, was the other county court judge. And I appeared in both parts, handling all the arraignments uh, and, and some of the pretrial work. Well, Judge Rosenblatt, as you probably know, and as anybody who knows the Court of Appeals knows, was a brilliant, talented, still is, brilliant, talented, creative, smart, energetic uh, person. The other judge was an active alcoholic um, racist. So I led this schizophrenic existence of moving from one part to the other with um, the opportunity to I interact with Judge Rosenblatt and then the opportunity to get berated and called four-letter words by the 
county court judge. So yes, um, discrimination took place. And of course, when I was in private practice, it was a different world back then. You know, you were called sweetie and honey and dear constantly, and you really couldn't complain about it because you needed to have the judge rule on your motion. But to give an example of how unusual it was, that was about the time that we started using the term Ms., which now is just part of absolute, you know, everyday parlance, but it wasn't back then. And I'll never forget one day I was um, in Dutchess County. I was in private practice in Ulster County, and I was handling a civil case in Dutchess County for my partner. And it was a Supreme Court special term. And in those days, the way Supreme Court special term was handled was that all the lawyers who had a motion all appeared in court at the same time. So the courtroom would be filled with lawyers, and sometimes their clients, but mainly lawyers. And the judge would call each motion, and he, the lawyers would go up and argue for a few minutes, and then the judge would move the case along. So I appeared for uh, my partner to get an adjournment in a civil case. And I was the only woman in the room, about 100 people in the room, and the clerk called the case, and I walked up to the bench, and I was standing there, and there was a, another attorney, a white male, because they were all white men. And the judge said, called the case, and this attorney noted his appearance, and I said, Karen Peters for the defendant. And the judge looked at me, and he said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I said, it's Ms., Your Honor. And he, looked, he was about, he was old. I'm old now, but he was, he was old then. And... Uh, he said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I said, it's Ms., Your Honor. And he looked at me, and you could, he did one of those, you know, when your body moves, when you can see you're getting angry. And the courtroom, all the guys in the back, which just got quiet, they're like, oh, my God, something's happening up there. Look at the judge. He's starting to move. And he said, I said, is it Miss or Mrs.? And I looked him straight in the eye, and I thought, you know what? I'm tired of this. i gotta, I got to make my name known. I am tired of being berated like this. And I just looked at him and I said, Your Honor, it's Miss. And if you can't pronounce that term, when you take a recess, I'm happy to come to your chambers and tutor you. And the whole courtroom was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And, you know, the truth is it was just one of those moments where I was so tired of this. And he responded really well. I mean, he was embarrassed that, you know, that somebody would have to say this to him when all I asked for was to be treated with respect. And he looked at me and he said... I deserved that, didn't I? And I, I was absolutely silent. I, was, I, I thought, you know what? I made my point. I'm never going to. You don't push any harder at that point. You just back off. And I said, Your Honor, may I continue now? And he said, yes. But, but that was the way it was back then. You know, you had to continuously assert your position in order to, in order to just, you know, move forward. So you went from there back into public service, the division of alcoholism and... Alcohol abuse? Yes, I moved from private practice and, and being an ADA to being counsel to the New York State Division of Alcoholism and Alcohol Abuse, which was a new agency uh, created out of uh, the Office of Mental Health. And uh, why, why did you go there? <sighs> Interesting. You know, um, when we started this conversation, I talked about how the paths we take are just so fascinating when we discover how we became what we became. And I mentioned to you my dad died when I was a teenager. My dad was uh, a recovering alcoholic and was one of the first members of AA in New York City in the 1940s. And I became a criminal defense lawyer and realized that almost all of the cases I was working on involved somebody who had a problem with alcohol or drugs. That just was, generally speaking the underlying situation that caused them to be where they were. 
So when the opportunity arose by an ad in the New York Times, um, and at the time I was so naive I thought one could answer an ad in the New York Times and really get a job, I answered an ad in the New York Times to become counsel to the State Division of Alcoholism. And uh, to the great credit of um, the commissioner at the time, I was hired without any political connections. And then um, went to Assembly Government Ops Committee? Right, right. I I left uh, the Division of Alcoholism, and Mel Zimmer, who was an assemblyman at Syracuse, who was the head of government operations, asked me if I would come work with him and uh, be direct the Government Operations Committee which I was very willing to do. I wanted to kind of get back into private practice, so my plan was to work part-time in private practice and part-time for uh, Mel Zimmer. But that wasn't meant to be because um, at the time that I started working for Mel, I worked for Mel for about a year, I think, maybe, and uh, in Ulster County there were two family court judges, uh, both white men, of course, they all were, both Republican, they all were, and one of them was retiring, and I was at a Women's Bar Association convention in the bar. In those days, we used to smoke, so we were all smoking in the bar at the time. And some of my friends suggested that I should run for family court in Ulster County because there was a vacancy, and it was important to raise issues concerning child welfare and domestic violence. And um, I said, are you kidding me? You know, I can't run for family court. They'd never elect a woman. They'd never elect a Democrat. And they said, well, no, you'll never get elected, but look at all the amazing work you can do to raise people's consciousness about the family court issues and child custody and discrimination. And I said, you know, that'd be fun. That'd be great fun. So I talked to uh, Mel Zimmer, and I said, listen, you know, they want me to run for family court. And he said, well, you're not going to win, right? And I said, no, I can't win. It's impossible. I said, but, you know, it'll be a great experience, and I think it'll be great to raise awareness about issues concerning children and families. And he said, well, go ahead. So I did, and I won. And all of a sudden, one morning, there I was, a judge. How did you manage to pull it off? I think, you know, I I think part of it was that people never ran for judgeships back then. They were anointed. And some political party said to somebody, you know, you're going to be the next judge, and here you go. And I decided that I was going to act the way people running for the legislature would act. I mean, I went to every strawberry festival and every town park, and I just campaigned um, endlessly. I even got the, uh, to my shock and surprise, I got the Electrical Workers Union endorsement, which is pretty good back then for a girl. <laughs> Did um, so, so you, you were the first woman in that position, I'm sure. Yes, I was. Were there, um, what gender specific experiences did you experience in that role? Well, you know, it's so funny. The, fir- the first gender-specific experience in that role was the first gender-specific experience in the appellate division role, and that was the bathrooms. It's so funny about how history seems to be all about public accommodations. You know, the history of the civil rights movement is about public accommodations. And the history of the women's rights movement is about public accommodations. So when I got elected family court judge, no one could figure out what to do because there were two judges. One was a white male and one was me. And there was one bathroom in between the two chambers. And what would we do? And I walked into the male judge and I said, so Bernie, can we share a bathroom? And he went, sure, Karen. And it was solved. Now, when I got appointed here by the first Governor Cuomo, there is a restroom next to the robing room, 
that was for the judges, the male judges. Now, there was a woman judge here when I got appointed to the appellate division, Ann Michael, who had been appointed, lived in Buffalo, because there was no woman Supreme Court judge in the entire third department that he could have appointed to the appellate division then. So they imported a judge from the fourth. And Judge Michael um, was a little bit less assertive than I was about things like this. And she just, when I got appointed the first day, I said, well, where do you go to the bathroom? They're all going in there. Where do you go to the bathroom? And she said, oh, I go back to my chambers two separate floors in this building. You've just traversed this building. You know what that's like. Or I go out to the clerk's office to the bathroom, which is a public restroom. So the first time I sat, I went out to the clerk's office area, public area. You've been there many times yourself. And um, I realized I was walking into the ladies' room with women lawyers who were going to be appearing before me in a few minutes, and it was just ridiculous. I mean, it was so absurd. So I mentioned to the clerk of the court, who was then Mike Novak, that it would be helpful if the bathroom next to the robing room could be made to accommodate women. And he, of course, wonderful man, said, no, 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 it's, you know, it's a men's room, it's a men's room. So my greatest achievement the first year on the bench was to convince them to put a lock on it and allow um, the rest of us to use the restroom. <laughs> I find it interesting that, that you um, were elected in 83, which is the same year that the gender barrier was broken to the Court of Appeals by Judge Kaye. Judge Kaye. Um, did that play a part in your decision at all to, to run? No. I didn't know Judge Kaye at the time. Uh, I did meet her afterwards, and I must say she, she was such an extraordinary woman. She was an amazing role model for all of us because the moment you met her, you knew she cared about you and your future. You knew she cared about people becoming better than they were that day and serving their community in every way they could. So we became very good friends over time. But no, I did not know her when I ran. How do you think she inspired and empowered women generally? Well, first of all, I think she truly cared about people. It was from the heart. It wasn't a public persona. She was that way outside of the public eye. And I'm sure you knew her well enough to know exactly what I mean. I remember she was so cute once. My, I'm, my son was probably about five, and she asked me to come up to Albany to do some panel on, on women running for office. And I said, you know, I don't have any child care. And she said, well, just bring him. I said, well, what am I getting? She said, it's okay, just bring him. So I drive up to Albany with my son, and, you know, I mean, he's five. You know, you can't just bring him into a panel and tell him to be quiet in the back of the room. And I walk into her chambers, and her law clerk looks at me and introduces himself, and she says, okay, so, Avanti, you're going to hang with him. We're going to get some work done. And her law clerk took Avanti around, had him sit on the bench in the Court of Appeals, find the candy bars in her drawer. And, I mean, she when we came back, she treated him as if he was the most important person in the world. And that's the way she treated everybody. Snickers bars in the, in the test. Snickers bars, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he, to this day, he remembers that. I had one of those myself. So, and then 10 years later, I think 92, you, you're the first woman elected to the Supreme Court in this seven county region. I was. Did um, gender play a role in that race in any way, positively or negatively? First of all, gender played a role in getting to run for Supreme Court at all because I didn't. The year I ran was not my first effort. I tried to be nominated for Supreme Court the year before, uh, and Ulster County pushed very hard to get my nomination, and uh, it was not meant to be. 
Um, again, there were three Caucasian men who were going to be running, and I was not permitted to be part of that team. But what I did, uh, again, kind of like with the judge in Supreme Court with the Miz, I, I said to myself, you know, this is an opportunity. I, I don't have enough votes at the convention to become the candidate, but I need to make sure that this historic moment does not go unnoticed. So I was nominated at the convention, and I um, intentionally and willfully wore a turquoise jacket and stood in the back of the room and asked if I could have a moment to speak and withdrew my name from the back of the room so that every single person in the room could hear exactly what I had to say and talked about party unity and talked about dignity and talked about making sure that our community is served and kind of paved the way for the next year when I wanted the nomination. So the nomination was a little easier to get the next year because the delegates remembered that I had not been offensive and I had not been critical, that I had attempted to achieve party unity and wanted very much to serve the people. Was that convention in the Albany County Courthouse? Mm -hmm. I think I was there. It was. I think I was there. Um, just two years later, you're over here on the appellate division. How, how did that come to be? Well, I'm not sure you'd have to ask Governor Mario Cuomo when he's not around to talk to, but... I think part of it is that I had I had worked in the Cuomo administration. You know, I had, I had been uh, counsel to the Division of Alcoholism under Governor Cuomo. Then I worked in the Assembly. So I was not unfamiliar with him, uh, and he was not unfamiliar with my work. And I think part of it was that he was, he was looking to create some diversity on this court because it was pretty similar, pretty cookie-cutter. And I applied. I think at, at, at the time there, there was one woman in the court, Ann Michael. Ann Michael, correct. But there's never been any, anyone from the district, from the department. No, there had never been. There were no women in the department that could get nominated. I was the first woman ever elected to the Supreme Court in the entire department, 28 counties. So there's nobody to choose from. Nobody to choose from. You've been a, a major force in promoting diversity on the bench, and we, we spoke about this before we turned the camera on. Um, other than symbolically in the matter of ethnic or gender pride, why is it important? What does it matter? Oh, we could talk about that for hours. Um, you know, I've always thought diversity was important. You know, I, I was raised in a, in a uh, I went to college in Washington, and I, I, I saw racism in action, and it, it offended me. I was raised in a community in Long Island where racism was, was rampant, and it offended me. Um, and as a woman, I was very concerned about the way women were treated in our, in our legal system. But I think I really learned the lesson of diversity from my son. I'm a single adoptive mom. Uh, my son is from India, from Calcutta, India. And uh, he came to me when he was four months old. And when he was about four years old, I was driving past the family court, the Ulster County Family Court, on my way to drop him off at daycare on my way to court. And he was in the back seat of the car, which, you know, of course he had to be in his little chair. And uh, he said to me, Mom, and I said, yes, Avanti. He said, how come only girls can be judges? Why can't boys be judges? And it was such an amazing thing to hear from this child. You know, I had spent my whole life dealing with gender discrimination in the judiciary and the law profession, and here I was with a child in the back seat feeling that he was discriminated against because there were two family court judges in Ulster County, and at the time, Historically, both of them for women were women, Judge Work and myself. So his whole life revolved around women judges. And I understood from that and learned from that that 
everyone can feel like they're not being treated fairly if their gender, race, religion, ethnic makeup is not adequately represented. And that's exactly what that lesson taught me. And it's true. I think that diversity is not just, you know, I don't think the court should be all white women. I don't think the court should be all white men. I think the court should reflect the community it serves. And if you think about what we do as, as judges, what we do is we resolve disputes by peaceful means. That's what we do. We are peacemakers. And if you think about that concept, there is no way we can resolve disputes by peaceful means if people don't believe that they've had the opportunity to be heard and treated fairly. And to think that you're being treated fairly, the courts have to reflect the community it serves. They just have to. And I, as you know, I have been adamant, strident about this, and I will never, ever stop. Let's talk about how far we've come since you were admitted. I was looking at some statistics the other day, and it looks like currently in the in the third district, anyhow, we've got a, a third of the city judges, city court judges are women, 60% of the family court, 67% of the surrogates court. We've got a majority on the Court of Appeals. Here, we've got four of nine or ten at the moment. You've got here. Ten. Four of ten, 40%. Um, when you were admitted, did, did you see this as likely or possible within your career? No, but I didn't know what my career was going to be either. Um, no, and, and I'm happy to see it. But I don't think, I still don't think the judiciary in upstate New York represent, reflects the community it serves, which is why I pushed so hard for the governor to appoint a person of color even outside the department because there are no, were no Supreme Court judges of color at the time. So I think we've really come far, um, but I think we have a long way to go. Well, continuing where I was, the, uh, about 20% of the, of the um, Supreme Court judges are, are women in the district. 20% of the Supreme Court judges are women in the district. Good point. And mm -hmm. of course, the interesting thing about running for Supreme Court is it's the most difficult court to run for because it's a seven-county district here, and in the, and the in the fourth department, it's even more counties. And you get nominated at a nominating convention in September, not in June, the way county-level judges are nominated. So you really have to be accepted beforehand to get nominated and win that race. So it's interesting that it does not reflect the diversity of our community. And there's a new crop of attorneys and prospective attorneys coming up, and maybe some in kindergarten. What would you want them to know about uh, the path that's been cleared for them and, and whatever obligation and responsibility they have to continue blazing trails? I think the first thing they have to remember is they have to be mindful of how hard it was to forge a path to get them the opportunity to be where they are today. And if they keep that in mind, then they will try very hard to keep that grass mowed in that pathway so that other people can walk it. One of the th concerns I have is that I see sometimes, I see young people today not being mindful of that challenge and therefore assuming that everything is going to be just fine for them. And I don't know that that's true if they're not attentive and cautious. And I also think it's really important that they spend a little bit of time 
focusing upon the fact that they need to be bold and they need to take risks. I think a lot of, a lot of people aren't willing to take those risks. You know, I certainly never thought I'd be where I am today. Um, I never thought I'd be in law school. But every single time those risks were in front of me, I, I, I leapt, I jumped, I took it. Uh, everything from, you know, running for family court, running for Supreme, to being a single adopted parent, I took every risk, and I don't regret one of them. What sort of risks, uh, tolls, does your career have on a family life? I think the commitment has to be enormous to be um, a parent and a judge. When I decided to adopt my son, I was mindful that a full-time judge and a single adoptive parent meant there wasn't anything else I could spend my time on. And that's what I did. I focused upon parenting and judging. And, uh, and that was fine with me. I made that commitment, and I was happy to do it. And, you know, when my son turned, I guess, 14, I finally uh, decided to do something for me and took a pottery class and have become a, a bit of a potter, a wheel thrown pottery. And it, it was wonderful. But I was happy to make that commitment. And uh, I think one has to decide that they really want to spend the time on it. But I also think that working and parenting is really important. I'm not so crazy about the idea that people should become parents and then stop working, either gender. It doesn't matter to me what gender you're talking about. I remember when my son was in, still in diapers, I, um, I picked him up at daycare and came back home. And, of course, the first thing I had to do was cook dinner. And I had... I had must, I must have gone someplace to give a lecture because I had this really pretty brown leather attache case, very small. And it, I brought it was in, I walked in the house with it. He was in one arm and the attache case was in the other arm. And I put it down on the floor and went into the kitchen to start dinner. And um, he's running around in the kitchen in his diaper. And he all of a sudden I see him and he's come back from the hallway and he's pulling, literally, he couldn't lift it, pulling this brown attache case. And he looked at me and he'd go, I'd be back soon, Ma. I go give speech now. Well, you know, I mean, think about that. You know, that a kid in diapers is is thinking about going to give a speech. He might not have known what it meant, but he knew it was important. And my son is now um, 29, and I asked him once when we were in the city having dinner uh, last year, and I said, okay, so, you know, how bad was it? I mean, you know, single parent, full-time judge, you had to behave all the time. You had to hand out dog biscuits when I ran for Supreme Court. He said, you know, Mom, it was great. You know, there were times when you worked a little too hard, but it was great to have that opportunity to see what life is like when people are really concerned about their community and working hard to make it right. And I think it's a good thing. And now he works for a charity, and I'm really proud of him for that. Judge, you're about to do something you have done, I suppose, hundreds of times by now, which is to come out in this courtroom and take center seat. Does it still give you goosebumps? Every single time. You know, I, I stand back there, and you can see behind there is a, is a space for us to come up. I take a deep breath, and um, every single time I realize the majesty of my position and this court and the power it has over people. And I am um, grateful for the responsibility and awed by it, yes. Now, by the time you became PJ, there was a, a pretty long history of having a woman on, the, on this court. Ann Michael from 77... Uh, and, and you, for a long time, what's the significance of having a woman as a PJ? Well, I think the significance of a PJ in general is that the presiding judge is really the face of, of the court. We set policy. 
we decide how we want to uh, spend our energy and what issues we want to focus upon. For example, when I became PJ, I was very concerned about us um, coming into the present day so that now we have simultaneous video cast of oral, oral arguments so clients can watch their their lawyers argue their case from any place in the world, actually, not only the country. Um, and we set policies and priorities, and I also sit on the administrative board, and the administrative board of the courts, which is made up of the four presiding judges and the chief judge, sets the policy for the entire courts across the state. But as far as being a female, I hope that I'm a role model, and I hope that young women uh, can look at me and say, I can achieve this too, even if my beginnings might have been humble. I think this was a, the last of the four departments to have a, um, a female presiding justice ever. We did Judge Ellerin in the first department, Judge Bredenke in the second, Judge Denman in the fourth. It's fairly early, I mean, a, while, a while ago. And we seem to be a chronic um, gem come lately here. Is, is there a reason for that or anything worth addressing in that? We are chronic come lately's. But the question you ask really uh, discusses the Supreme Court and the appellate division. So we are chronic come lately's to the Supreme Court with regard to women achieving status as Supreme Court judges. And of course, there are very few of us on the Supreme Court in the third department. And as you've mentioned, I was the first. So I think the answer is um, that the issue concerning why women haven't been permitted to run for Supreme Court in the third department is a political question that you should investigate from someone other than myself. I have a suspicion, and I'm only guessing, that uh, one of the first people who called you after you were appointed presiding justice was Judge Kay. Of course. You know, Judge Kay and I go back a long way, and she's been an incredible mentor to me and role model. So she did call. And, and as you know, you know, she was not the chief judge at the time, um, but she did call, and she was thrilled. And she, I think she was as excited as I was for that opportunity. But I think the most interesting call I got when I became presiding judge of the court was from the governor's office because I received a phone call from the governor's secretary, and um, she said, you know, Governor Cuomo will be calling you. And, of course, I was so excited because I knew what that meant. And I said, you know when? And she said, no, I'm not sure. So I, um, I kind of waited around and waited around and waited around, and 5 o'clock came and 6 o'clock came, and I had to leave the courthouse. Um, and I went to Target to buy some items for my 99-year-old uncle, who I attended to. And as I'm in Target at the checkout counter with these items that I will not describe in detail, my cell phone rings, and it's the governor's office. And I'm standing there at the Target checkout counter with these things for my elderly uncle who needed them. And I thought, what do I do now? And I, I, to be honest, I let it ring through. And I got back in the parking lot. I'm in the Target parking lot, and I call back the governor's office. And I'm on the phone with the governor in the Target parking lot. That's what we women do. But I attended to my uncle, and I got appointed presiding judge. What did the governor say to you? He was really so upbeat. Uh, you know, he was very excited to call and offer me the opportunity. And I, I told him how grateful I was and reminded him that his father had appointed me to the appellate division. He said, I know, I know. He said, but I'm not my father. You know, he, he, he's always been humble about, about his father, who was a quite extraordinary person. 
And what were you feeling and thinking the first time you walked to the center seat as PJ? I was thinking of my father, who taught me that my life should li- be lived more loudly than my lips. It's an important philosophy, and I was reminded of that, and I was reminded of how proud he would have been at me of me had he been alive uh, when I took this seat. I was thinking of Sojourner Truth because um, I have my chambers in Ulster County, and Sojourner Truth won her son's freedom from slavery in the very courthouse I sit. And there's a statue uh, in front of our courthouse about Sojourner Truth. And she was an amazing suffragette and a fighter uh, against slavery. So I thought of her and, um, and my family. That's fascinating. Are there any um, special burdens or special responsibilities inherent in being the first? Yes, there are special burdens inherent in being the first. Um, You have to concern yourself with everything you say and do because people judge it, I think, a little differently than if you are the second or the third. There's a a very famous playwright and political person named Lillian Hellman. I don't know if you're familiar with her. But when she appeared before the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 50s, She said, uh, when she was called to testify, she said, I will not cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions. And that philosophy is something I've tried to live by. So by being the first, I try very hard not to cut my conscience to fit this year's fashions and to be my own self and my own person and to be bold and to know that people will be following in my footsteps and I'm hoping that they will consider me a leader. Thank you for listening to this edition of Amici. If you have a suggestion for a topic on Amici, call John Carr at 518-453-8669 or send them a note at jcaher at nycourts.gov. In the meantime, stay tuned.